welcome to This Week Explained. I am Tiana. And I'm Kervin. And today we will be discussing the big geopolitical events of the week. But first, let's talk about how great our week has been. Oh, it's been wild. It's, uh, I mean, crazy. I don't, it's we, Thursday and I don't even. We, we've done a lot of stuff, a lot the, of personal stuff this week. But then we also had the big interview that we've been teasing for a while. Yeah, and we're still not saying who it is. Yes. It's very cool, though. We're, we'll drop some hints. No, it, we're not. It, what? No, no what, hints? Well, what hint? Okay, what hint? It's with a, an FBI person. Oh, okay. That really narrows it down. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, we're waiting on to see if we're going to get the snow here. Yeah. It's got they have the blizzard happening in the northeast. northeast and yes. fingers crossed we don't get that blizzard. Oh, Just give us like an inch of snow. Yeah, that'll be fine. We'll just hunker down this weekend, and it'll be it'll be fine. But not only in our lives has it been crazy. Yeah. Globally, it has been crazy. So I guess that means we need to dive right in. So what is on your radar this week? <clears throat> well, uh, we'll start with, obviously, Russia. There's a lot of confusion over Russia. Mm-hmm. There was a coup in Burkina Faso. Hey, who, do you feel It's tra- not. <laughs> Are you triggered right now? A little bit. Do you feel... Do you, you're having flashbacks. Yeah. Ah! <laughs> uh, the Houthi rebels are at it again oh. with an attempted attack on a U.S. base in the United Arab Emirates. Okay. Um, Lithuania backtracks on their support of Taiwan. And then this week's histories, mysteries. And oh my that's, gosh. I don't like that. I don't like that. But <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep it in for yeah. fun. That way we can go back to it and I'll be like, do you remember that time you sounded really dumb <laughs> announcing <laughs> histories, mysteries? Let that me to play me that is clip. like every episode. Do you remember no. when you sounded dumb on an episode? Yeah, and I'm like, yes, I do. It that, was every episode. That's my, that's me, that's me too. <laughs> but uh, the story for this week's histories, mysteries I've been following since 2019. Um, it is of the Isdal woman, and it's a very fascinating story. Can't wait to get into that. Okay, well, thank you for giving us a brief overview of what we're going to be going through today, but um, <clears throat> why is there confusion over how to deal with Russia? Well, Tiana, once again, that is an excellent question. I'm so good at this. <laughs> and so as we've discussed before, there is no stomach for war in the world today. Uh-huh. Well, at least not in the Western world. Yeah. And so now you're seeing that play out with multiple NATO countries backtracking on supporting Ukraine with money, munitions, and militaries. Uh, so I want to go in-depth on where each country stands, and we'll start with the United States. Okay, that sounds good. What is the United States saying right now? Well, the U.S. just put 8,500 troops on alert this week with the possibility of deploying them to shore up NATO defenses in Eastern Europe. Uh, but the messaging from officials is still confusing. It seems like every hour a conflicting report on support to Ukraine is released. However, Russia and the U.S. have agreed to continue talks in hopes the two sides can agree to de-escalate the situation. And only time will tell if diplomatic talks will be successful. Should the U.S. get involved at all, though? Another excellent question. And Mm -hmm. it is in the United States' best interest to deny Russia control over Ukraine. A Russia fortified by Ukrainian resources would be a dangerous adversary and a bigger threat to NATO. Uh, One of the great results from the end of the Cold War was the breakup of the Soviet Empire. And as we've said before, Vladimir Putin wants to reassemble it into a sphere of influence that would enhance his standing at home 
and increases influence abroad. The U.S. has also agreed to provide gas to Europe if Russia shuts off supplies. Is the U.S. evacuating citizens living in Ukraine now? Well, the U.S. has told diplomats in Ukraine to evacuate. However, the vast majority have decided to stay for now. Now, messaging from the United States has been consistent on that front. All Americans living in Ukraine should depart the country while commercial flights are still available. I'll say it again. All Americans living in Ukraine should depart the country while commercial flights are still available. Once Russia invades, the situation will be far worse than what we saw in Afghanistan last summer. That's um, not very comforting. What are the rest of the NATO countries doing? Well, as well, there's some conflict within NATO on how to best achieve its ultimate goal of peace. So I was able to sit in on this week's NATO discussion on Ukraine, and there was a lot of tough talk on Russia. Uh, But the big takeaway from that discussion was NATO assurances that peace is what NATO is most concerned with. So every speaker made a point to explain that this is the single most dangerous moment for Europe and the rest of the free world since the end of the Cold War. Former U.S. Ambassador to Russia, Alexander Vershbow, said the very existence of Ukraine is a threat to Russia, and this entire conflict is created by Russian President Vladimir Putin. NATO headquarters explained that every country has a right to choose their affiliations with NATO and that the NATO countries are 100% aligned and united in an openness to dialogue. Sounds like NATO wants to de-escalate this situation. It really does. Understandably. Very understandably. (laughs) Uh, So that discussion is led by the countries of France and Germany. Mm -hmm. While the nations of the U.S., U.K., and even Canada view a Russian invasion as imminent, France views the intelligence differently and has stated they do not see an an imminent threat from Russia. Mm -hmm. This week, the French president said he was still planning to talk to the Russian leaders, but only about de-escalation. Germany has denied Estonia the right to send German manufactured munitions to Ukraine, a decision that has the U.S., U.K., and Poland concerned. Uh, Germany's concern being a full-fledged armed conflict with Russia, especially during some of the colder months of the year, could devastate the people of Germany if Russia does decide to cut off all resources with Western Europe. Well, what about the UK? Where do they stand at this point? Well, they are being very outspoken about how tough the Western world should be on Putin and Russia right now. UK officials last week made mention of a possible plot to install a pro-Russia government in Ukraine. And the British government accused Russia of seeking to supplant Ukraine's government via military force and replace it with a pro-Russian administration, possibly led by Yevgeny Muradov. Um, who is, I... I yeah, and I, I butchered do, that I do, name, I too. I do not want to butcher <laughs> your name. I'm very sorry. I, oh. Well, he is a, um, he's a Ukrainian politician and media owner and an ardent supporter of Russia. Uh, He supported the annexation of Crimea and has stated in the past that Crimea's annexation was favorable to the Ukrainian government. So what would installing a pro-Russia government do for the conflict? Well, if Russia is successful in installing a new government in Ukraine without ever sending official military personnel into the country, they would essentially have avoided armed conflict while also bringing Ukraine back under Russian control. This would then be Russia's blueprint for successfully taking back control of all other former Soviet countries. Now, with all that said, 
Russia has ramped up their I.O. campaign to gain favor in the region. What? Um, what is an I.O. campaign? Their I.O. Oh, thank, campaign? Thank you again, Tiana. Okay, sorry. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, 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 you don't always, have to thank me. I, like, you don't have to thank me for asking I always forget to define what stuff is, so. Well, help help people like me who don't have an Intel background like you. Help, Definitely. Help me. So yeah. an IO <laughs> campaign is an information operations campaign. Okay, that makes sense. Or a better way to describe what Russia's actions are would be the use of misinformation and disinformation to make the West look weak and make Ukrainian citizens sympathetic to Russia's plans. So how are they going about doing that? Well, that's a good question. The technology firm Logically, which is a British-based company that helps governments and businesses counter disinformation, has been tracking Russian social media accounts along with Twitter accounts of Russian officials. So they noticed posts and articles accusing some Ukrainians of being neo-Nazis had dramatically increased since early November. The Moscow-backed information campaign also accused the United States of planning a chemical attack which spiked on December 21st. Much of the propaganda is aimed at a domestic audience in Russia and the pro-Russia Ukrainians. If Russia does invade Ukraine, it needs to make sure it has the support of Russian speakers in the country as its military equipment rolls across fields and knocks down houses. Much like its efforts to divide the American electorate in the last two presidential elections by stoking debates about racism, guns, and other divisive issues, Russia's trying to increase polarization in Ukraine to give it a tactical advantage. The U.S. State Department issued a memo on Russian disinformation. I'll link that in the show notes. Okay, I'll, look, I'll read that. Is there anything else on Russia and NATO relations? Well, big week because the U.S. and NATO delivered their official response to Moscow's security demands. <laughs> okay there. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> And what about it? <laughs> well, both entities have stated they will not disclose their responses to benefit diplomatic relations of all countries involved. But Russia being Russia, mm-hmm. they stated they will release the statements for the world to see. So that's where we're at. But word out of D.C. is that the U.S. denied Russia's request for limiting NATO's expansion, which was a key Russian request. Additionally, muddling the situation... Russia will assume the presidency of the U.N. Security Council for one month on February 1st. Well, we will wait for next week's update then. Um, do you really want to talk about the coup in Burkina Faso? Because I know that was a really fun time for both of us. <laughs> well, I mean. <laughs> we already talked about that. Yeah. Fed the kids ice cream sundaes. And I was like, I'm not cooking. <laughs> Tried to get on the internet a thousand times and it never came up, but uh, I'd rather it didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, But I will try to make it through this conversation without a complete meltdown. Oh, he's so full of it. No promises. He's not going to melt down. He's fine, guys. (laughs) Uh, So for those that don't know, we were on opposite sides of the globe, myself and Tiana here, during a coup attempt on Burkina Faso in 2015. Uh, I was in the country's capital of Ouagadougou. And you were stressed out back in the United States, wondering when we'd be able to actually talk again. So a coup is no fun situation to be a part of, no matter where you are. Now, uh, this past week's ousting of President Rok Kabore, uh, while unsettling, was not unexpected. 
And this is the fourth coup in West Africa in the last 17 months. So what is the issue there? Well, uh, militant attacks on the country beginning in 2015 have claimed more than 2,000 lives while forcing 1.5 million people from their homes. Schools are closed in large parts of the country because it's too dangerous for them to open. Public confidence in the president's management of the security crisis sharply fell after an attack in a northern village in June of 2021. More than 100 people were killed in the attack, blamed on militants who had crossed from the neighboring country of Mali. Jihadists have also triggered sectarian tensions between previously coexisting Christian and Muslim communities in Burkina Faso. So who is leading the coup efforts in Burkina Faso? First, let me say I will butcher the name again. But that would be Paul Henry Sandalgo Damiba. He's a 40-year-old lieutenant colonel who actually opposed the 2015 coup attempt. What has this done for the region? Well, it is destabilizing West Africa. Uh, recently, countries in the area have accused France, the leading financier of security in former French colonies like Burkina Faso, of neo-colonial arrogance in the region. And as well, this destabilization is turning the Western Sahel into a safe haven for Islamic terrorists. While Mali has turned to Russia for support, Burkina Faso is reaching out to the Western world for help. Countries like France, the U.S., and the U.K. have all provided security resources for Burkina Faso and its neighbors in Niger, Nigeria, and even Mali. Um, Where does this lieutenant colonel stand in regards to terrorist activity in the region? Uh... Well, in June, he published a book titled West African Armies and Terrorism, Uncertain Responses, in which he analyzed anti-terrorism strategies in the Sahil region and their limits. Now, I haven't read the book as of yet, but once I do get my hands on a copy, we can come back to the story and speak more on what uh, Lieutenant Colonel Damiba is trying to accomplish. I will say this, though. Uh, Damiba has been upset for several months due to a lack of resources being given to the, Bur- the Burkinabe military. So he appears to be a law and order type military leader who will look to at least secure the country of Burkina Faso. Well, I'll keep you to that promise. So we're going to definitely come back to this. Um, Let's discuss more attacks coming from the Houthis in Yemen. Oh, yeah. So if you remember last week, we discussed the drone and missile attacks on site in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Well, the U.S. military intervene this week to help the UAE thwart a missile attack on an air base where about 2,000 American personnel are stationed. Oh my gosh, was anybody hurt? Well, the U.S. was able to fire off multiple Patriot missiles and successfully thwarted the attack. Uh, Emirati authorities said missile fragments had fallen around Abu Dhabi, but they caused no casualty. American forces on the base were on a heightened state of alert, and spent about an hour in security bunkers after the missile alert sounded. Now, there are two opposing ways to view this attack. The Houthis could have done this as a show of force, and understood that their missiles would be successfully engaged by counter-defense missiles, but wanted increased internal morale by showing their fighters and supporters they're still engaged in an armed conflict in the region. The other way to view this, though, through the lens of counterintelligence activity, is that this was an information-gathering attack, and the rebels wanted to understand how the U.S. would respond if attacked by munitions in the region. Now, as we discussed last week, 
The Houthis claimed responsibility for a missile attack, and the Saudi-led coalition retaliated with airstrikes on northern Yemen, killing scores of people at a detention center and knocking out the internet across the impoverished country. The Houthis had threatened to avenge those strikes and to attack the UAE again, and this could be part of that retaliation. Has the coalition retaliated for this latest missile attack? None that I can find as of yet, but Yemen had been dealing with a four-day internet outage due to those airstrikes on northern Yemen. And forces of Yemen's internationally recognized government and their UAE-backed allies swept through a strategic central province, forcing Houthi rebels out of its second-largest district. So, in my opinion, a retaliatory airstrike would do more damage to the people of Yemen than it would to an already retreating Houthi alliance. Okay, we'll keep that on our radar for future episodes, but now let's discuss Lithuania and Taiwan. Last week, you reported that Slovenia had shocked Chinese officials with plans to allow Taiwan to strengthen trade ties with the Central European country. So what is going on now in Lithuania? Lithuania officials are trying to defuse a commotion with China and are discussing whether to ask their Taiwanese counterparts to modify the Chinese translation of the name of Taiwan's de facto embassy in the capital of Vilnius. China has downgraded its diplomatic relationship with Lithuania and pressed multinationals to sever ties with the country or face exclusion from its market. That seems like a pretty severe exchange from China. It definitely is. And it has dragged usually apolitical companies into a political dispute, placing Beijing on a possible collision course with the European Union. The Chinese paper Global Times published an article recently saying that it will take much more than just renaming the office for Lithuania to mend its relationship with China. Lithuania became one of the first countries to declare independence from the Soviet Union in 1990. They would then blaze a trail of democracy in Central and Eastern Europe. In recent years, Lithuania has been one of Europe's most ardent critics of China on issues ranging from the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims to Hong Kong's freedoms and now supporting a free and independent Taiwan. How has China's rhetoric impacted Lithuania? Well, China accounts for 1% of Lithuania's exports, so the impact is not as debilitating as it would be if European nations started boycotting Lithuanian products Mm -hmm. as well. Earlier this month, Taiwan Tobacco and Liquor Corp purchased 20,000 bottles of Lithuanian rum after learning that it could be blocked from entering China. Now, Lithuanian rum is not a sponsor, but if they'd like to send some our way, we'd be happy to imbibe. I know. I've never even heard of that. I want some. I want some bad. I never thought to even, like, look for rum in over there, like I never, I never thought about looking for rum in Eastern Europe ever. Well, dang, missed opportunity, I guess. Um, after that statement, I think it's time for your favorite part: histories, mysteries. Powered by Lithuanian rum. You're such an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what is the story this week? Here? Well, like I said, it's a story I've been tracking since 2019, and before we go down this rabbit hole, I recommend. After this episode, Mm -hmm. our entire audience listened to the BBC World Service podcast titled Death in Ice Valley. I'll link it in the show notes. Now, the Isdal woman is the name given to an unidentified woman who was found dead at Isdalin, which is the in English is Ice Valley. 
It is in Bergen, Norway, and that happened on 29 November 1970. Although police at the time ruled a verdict of likely suicide, the nature of the case encouraged speculation and ongoing investigation in the years since. So she committed suicide? Well, half a century later, it remains one of the most profound Cold War mysteries in Norwegian history. Did she commit suicide? Or was she murdered by a state-sponsored assassin? Was she an intelligence operative? Or was she a double agent found out by the rival service and killed in a strange manner to send a message to her affiliated agency? So what do we actually know about her? Factually, not a whole lot. Speculatively, a whole lot. Okay, well, can we discuss the suicide angle first? Um, What are the facts that led investigators to rule it as a likely suicide? Well, Isdalen, also known as Ice Valley, where she was found, has been nicknamed Death Valley due to the area's history of suicides in the Middle Ages and a more recent string of hiking accidents. The cause of death was ruled as a combination of carbon monoxide poisoning and barbiturate overdose. That data would make suicide a plausible cause of death. Then why does the case remain unsolved? Uh, Well, the authorities still believe that she had committed suicide by ingestion of sleeping pills, but an examination of the site found the front of her body and her clothes had been severely burned and she was unrecognizable. Also located or placed near the body and affected by the fire were an empty bottle of liquor, two plastic water bottles, a plastic passport container, rubber boots, um, a woolen jumper, a scarf, nylon stockings, uh, a whole bunch of personal items. Yeah. And around the body were traces of burned paper, and beneath that was a fur hat, which was later found to have traces of gas. Mm-hmm. All identifying marks and labels on these items had been removed or rubbed off. So... Did she take sleeping pills and then fall face first into a campfire? (laughs) Now, while that's a wild thought, I mean, it would be very plausible. Um, The only problem with that is a campfire was not started nearby. Okay, so what is the spy angle to this story? So investigators found two suitcases belonging to the woman at the Bergen Railway Station. In the lining of one suitcase, police discovered 500 Deutschmark notes. Among other items, they found clothing, shoes, wigs, makeup, eczema cream, Mm. 135 Norwegian kroner, Belgian, British, and Swiss coins, maps, timetables, a pair of non-prescription sunglasses, or non-prescription glasses, Mm -hmm. sunglasses with her partial fingerprints, and a notepad. Now, the BBC podcast has a ton of information, and their Facebook group has a lot of great photos of the personal effects found by investigators. Now, to make matters even weirder, any possible identifying information had been removed from all of her personal items. Soot was found in her lungs, meaning she was burned alive, and her neck was bruised, possibly from a fall or by a blow. Analysis of her blood and stomach showed that she had consumed between 50 and 70 sleeping pills. Also found next to her body were 12 additional sleeping pills. Norway had also experienced other strange disappearances in the 1960s, which also traced back to international espionage. There are declassified records of the Norwegian armed forces that expose many of the Isdal woman's movements, seeming to parallel top-secret trials of the Penguin missile. 
Even a fisherman in the era in the area also reported to have seen the woman while observing military movements in the city of Stavanger. She used nine separate identities to check into hotels, although no passports were found, which is what a state-sponsored intelligence agent would do. And they still don't know what happened? It remains a mystery, but the BBC podcast has shed light on the case, and a geneticist with the DNA Doe Project, which is an American nonprofit volunteer organization, contacted the authorities to possibly run a DNA test on the woman to find possible family members. No family has come forward since her death, which I kind of think is the saddest part of the whole story. Yeah. In 2019, a French resident came forward and admitted to having a relationship in the 70s with the unknown woman, but details were scarce. He did mention that while going through her personal items, and shame on him for that, Mm -hmm. he began to suspect she was a spy and at one point thought about contacting the authorities. So the mystery remains. But if the information being brought up about her different names, clothes, wigs, etc. is true, then this is definitely a case of a compromised intelligent agent suicided by a rival intelligence agency. Honestly, this story really fascinates me because it has all the makings of a spy assassination. I hope with the improvement of DNA data that we can learn more about her and possibly uncover her true identity and the nature of her work in Norway. So much to this story that we just don't have time to discuss today. But if anyone listening is an internet detective looking into this story, we'd love to hear from you and any new information you may have found. Okay, well, um, is there anything else for this week? Uh, after that, I think we are out of time this week. Okay, well, as always, if you like this show, please try to tell at least one person about us. We can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, head over to Apple and Spotify Podcasts and give us a five-star review. Those help us get noticed by thousands of podcast listeners globally. And as always, if you would like in-depth coverage of these stories and more, please subscribe to our community at oquinanalytics.com. Tiana, thank you so much. And until next week, stay safe out there.